Let's do it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode seven of IPNO from Home. We are, of course, as always, live from my couch. Today, we have a special guest, Dr. Francine Conway. Hi, Francine. Hi, good morning. Thrilled to be here. Um, so, Francine, can you give uh, us and everyone listening a little introduction to what you do at Rutgers and what your expertise is? Sure. Um, so I'm the dean of the graduate school for applied and professional psychology at Rutgers, New Brunswick. And we have a school that prepares uh, doctoral level and master's level psychologists to uh, provide services to our communities in terms of mental health needs. Um, we have a school psychology program and a clinical psychology program. And then we also have a general master's in psychology, applied psychology program. Mm -hmm. So I have the pleasure of um, working very closely with young folks as they become uh, professionals in the field of psychology. Nice, that's awesome. Great. Um, so, you know, during this whole crisis, there's obviously all these like all these physical health issues that people are worried about. But um, there's also a mental health side of, you know, you have to stay indoors. You can't go out. You can't see your friends, your family. So what would your general advice or general guidance be to helping people cope better during this crisis? That's a great question, uh, Paul. I want to say that as the spread of COVID Sort of impacts our homes, our workplace, our communities. We have experienced loss, some losses that are close to us, and we've learned about losses that others have experienced through, you know, our various social networks. And we all bear witness to the unfortunate parallel of anxiety and stress over our individual lives and daily interactions. And the pandemic has created a paradox for us. The very same set of behaviors that reassures us and gives us comfort, the turning to each other for support and embrace, sharing a meal together, now poses a significant threat to our lives. So what do we do? How do we cope when we're feeling anxious and depressed or sad? And it is important to remember that the pandemic has added another layer of stress and even trauma that impacts the way we normally function. So any emotional vulnerabilities that we may have had previously are now heightened. And in many ways, it looks like looking into a mirror, but now that it's, it's magnified, it's like magnified, uh, magnifying glass. And there's a spotlight on our anxieties, our fears, all of our tendencies are magnified. And what makes it so challenging, as I said before, is that we do not have access to our usual ways of coping that are really rooted and grounded in interactions. So for example, if spending time with our friends or playing a team sport provided, provided an outlet, that option is no longer available. So I've got sort of three general things that I'll recommend and we can talk through that. Um, so the first is social distancing. And I'll say that social distancing does not mean social isolation. Right. right. So we wanna connect with friends and family and colleagues using whatever technology we have available to us. 
But more than that, I would say this is a good opportunity to deepen some of our relationships with others. Um, I know for mm -hmm. myself and folks that I speak to, you may have had friends that you're not that close to, that you you feel very fondly about, but you just never had the time to reach out or to spend time with them. So to deepen that relationship. But at the same time, I would say it's not a time to make life-changing decisions around our relationships. So it's really not a good time to decide to get a divorce or to break up um, or to re-examine and dig up those old hurts and past. You know, you may find yourself with family members for long periods of time, more than you normally would spend together. And it's not the time to go back down that path of what, who did what, because that just stirs up a lot more anxiety and we sort of need our resources to get through this crisis. So I wouldn't recommend that, but try to find common ground. Focus on the positives. And um, if possible, you know, especially if you're safe, right? So if you're in a relationship that's abusive, you don't want to stay there. But if you're safe and no one is really in immediate danger, it's just a time to sort of try to find that common ground and deepen those relationships. Great. So Francine, um, what's been your advice for parents who are now, uh, because of the situation now, find themselves working from home and have their children around them much more uh, during their work hours? Uh, do you have any sort of general guidance for how they should uh, deal with that? Yes. And, um, the, you know, it is a difficult situation. It's a challenging one. And certainly <clears throat> we're sort of as they say, sheltering in place and limited in terms of where we can go. Right. So there are two things that I would recommend. The first is around avoiding overexposure to COVID-related information. So it's all around us. It's on social media platforms, <coughs> in the news, even in the commercials, actually. A lot of businesses have pivoted and redone their commercials to suit the COVID-19 crisis. And so sometimes we may not even be aware of when we're triggered by this information because it's coming at us from many different directions. So what I would recommend is first to notice how we're feeling. So parents notice when you're feeling anxious, irritable, angry, impatient, and recognize that those feelings are also present in your children. Just that children express it a little differently um, for children, they don't necessarily say I'm anxious or they don't have the words to, to identify those feelings, but may want to express it in irritability or, you know, sort of being bothered easily, you know, saying angry words to their peers or to you. So to not personalize, right? And right. so everything that parents experience, children experience, they're, they're people too, and they have emotions. So it's really important to take care of yourself and your children by limiting exposure to news and social media platform. This decide on how much screen time you want your children to have. It may be easy to park them in front of a TV or right. a game or what have you. And that leads to my next recommendation. So what do you do if they're not sitting in front of the screen or they're not right. on in classes, and we know that school is coming to an end soon, parents are concerned, what, what do we do this summer? 
at least with school, they would get up and, you know, get in front of whatever uh, teachers that they have. So I would say um, create a rhythm and a routine for yourself. Sometimes the days can run together and it's not unusual to feel confused about, is it the weekend? Is it during the week? You know, we're, we're so used to being scheduled and sometimes overscheduled. The good part about schedules is that it gives us cues, cues to relax, cues to be on, right? So we know when we're driving into work, we're gearing up ourselves emotionally, psychologically for that work day. But when we're driving home, we know, or leaving work, we know, okay, I can turn it off now. So one thing I would recommend for parents is to pick different parts of the house for different activities, <clears throat> excuse me, activities. So for example, you know, meals are in this part of the house. Mm -hmm. uh, at right, right. the evening, dinner time, we're going to go down to this other part of the house. Um, in the morning, have a routine. Get up, just like if you're going to school or going to work, you engage in those daily activities of daily living care, and then you get started. So take breaks, go for a walk. Have a lunch period. <laughs> Most of us <laughs> don't have lunch period, so make time for that and have a, a routine um, that will give us those cues and sets our, you know, help our, our bodies to get into that rhythm. And I think especially right. for children with attentional problems and focus problems like ADHD, this is particularly challenging. And I would say for parents, pick your battles. Pick your right. battles. Right. You just have to get through it. It doesn't mean you have to get through it in um, the way that you may want them to do it. Be flexible. Right. right. Find a structure and try to encourage and adhere to that structure, but be as flexible as you can. Right. Thank you. So, so real quick, I, I just want to go back to limiting overexposure for children, right? And I think one of the interesting things for me to think about is how important is it to a child's health, uh, mental health, to at least understand what's going on? Because like you said, you know, you see their, you know, a child notices when a parent is angry or their patience is, you know, wearing thin. And how important is it for them to know what's going on without, you know, like you said, overexposing them to, to all of this information that's being thrown at us from every direction? Yes, so very, very good question. Um, it's really important to understand that children have different understanding or different levels of understanding or capacity to understand information based on their developmental stage. So the way you share information with a you know five-year-old is not the same way you share information with a 10-year-old or with an adolescent. So that's the first thing. So to really be measured in the way and the language in which you provide the information. As parents, I think, naturally want to protect our children and hide things from them and shield them. But mm -hmm. that creates um, a situation where it's very confusing or confounding to the child because they can see that something is wrong yeah. and they can right, see right. that the parents are anxious or concerned, but they don't have the language to understand that experience or to interpret it. So I see the parents' role as being able to give their children language to say, this is unfortunate. You know, I know that you wish you could be out there playing with your friends or spending time with your friends. It is tough for me too, and we're gonna get through this together. You know, and then make a plan 
for what you're going to do together. So it's really important to acknowledge and not pretend that it doesn't exist because that will create more confusion and really not help the child to be able to process and self-regulate their own emotions around the situation. I feel like uh, like that overexposure even can affect like uh, adults. E- even speaking for like- myself, when yeah. like this first started, yeah. I would watch the news every day and you know try to know what was going on and not that you shouldn't be informed, but like it, it got to a point where it was just driving me crazy. You know, I was like, I can't yeah. even watch it anymore. If something really important happens, I'll 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 find out somehow. That's so I feel right. like taking yeah. a break from the news cycle and just like doing constant research on it is is a good thing for for anyone. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's really important to sort of carve that time out and say, okay, yes. I'm going to spend, you know, whatever, an hour or two. And then step away from it because you do need to be able to have a sense of life continues. That continuity of life is really, really important. It's just continuing in a different way and in a different format. But um, certainly the pull is to spend all your time researching. And I think for individuals who are prone to um, having some... um, there's a disorder in, in psychology, obsessive compulsive disorder, where um, someone can get fixated on a particular thing and then they just spend a lot of time with that. Um, so this particular pandemic pulls for that in some of us. And we all have those tendencies, some more right. than others. And so we really want to take care of ourselves and monitor that. And I think, as I said before in my opening remarks, um, if you're already having some challenges, so in our school, we have two centers for um, autism, and that's a particular challenge for parents who are at home with a child with autism who has significant behavioral problems. Not all autism uh, individuals do, but some do. How do you manage that child's behavior? How do you you know, get through this without the usual supports that you have in place. So my heart really goes out to parents. Um, you're you're doing a hero's job. We always did, but it's particularly um, highlighted now. So I do want to say something about um, my third sort of recommendation, and this applies to parents, children older adults, um, all of us. And that's a comment, uh, or want to give some comments about finding meaning. So um, just to briefly address this notion of optimism and staying positive, like some folks say, be optimistic, stay positive. Um, and it's not unusual to hear that during a crisis or a traumatic event. Um, this is true and it is useful. However, there have been some well-known optimism researchers, um, such as Carver and Schreier, who have shown that optimism leads to better health outcome and recovery. On the other side of this argument is um, a researcher by the name of Malam. Malam and colleagues show that both low and high optimism is associated with increased health risk. So, for example, someone who's very optimistic does not do as well, equally well as someone who has low optimism or a less positive outlook. And why is this important? 
So it means that if we're too optimistic and we say the world is great, everything is going to be okay, don't worry about it, it leads to us participating and conducting um, ourselves in a manner that leads to increased risk. So if you don't right. believe that this is real and you don't believe that it's happening and you are just going to think positive, then you might go out there without the proper secure um, uh, coverings. You might expose yourself to others because you think everything is fine. Right. right. So that optimism is sort of a defensive response to trauma and to the pandemic, and some of us are experiencing that, not realizing that we're actually putting ourselves more at risk. Yeah. Um, so a moderate amount of optimism is good. <laughs> but when we're interacting with our kids, we don't want to paint a rosy picture, like all is well, because that's not really accurate. You want to give, a mo I, I would say everything in moderation is the best approach. Um, and the same with pessimism. If we're too pessimistic, we can get very depressed, get very down. Um, so we don't want to have, you know, high, we don't want to be high on pessimism either. Like everything right. is bad, right? Because there's no hope. So again, just sort of being moderate in our approach is really helpful. <clears throat> Excuse me. That just made me think of kind of a funny story. I, w I was, uh, I was outside of my apartment the other day and I saw two completely different sides of the spectrum. I saw one person walking in what was basically like a hazmat suit. And I was like, that seems like a little bit much. <laughs> and then I saw one guy right riding his bike wearing a Batman suit. <laughs> and I was like, how do these two people exist in the same place? And I happen to be standing there. <laughs> I was like, these are two very different people. Very different. And we're all like that. Like we all mm -hmm. have very different personalities and very different ways of responding to the crisis and dealing with it and coping with it. Right. So and the same with our kids, like children also have a range of responses to this. And I think it's what makes the world such an interesting place because we've got this diversity. No one person is the same. No one is going to react to this the same. And so um, it makes for very, for humor. <laughs> so Francine, there's a there's another uh, demographic that is also being affected by this, uh, particularly is the elderly. Um, do you have any uh, guidance that's more specific for uh, people of that age group who may be uh, already dealing with a little bit of isolation in some in some cases? Yeah, absolutely. Um, some of my research actually had looked at social networks of older adults. And the truth is that social networks, um, what the research shows is that as older adults um, move up in the world, they have more losses. So older adults are used to dealing, not used to, but loss is not new for them. Right. This is just an extra sort of context. And because they they bring their experiences, their life experiences to bear on any situation, we may actually be able to learn from them because they have more of a, a flexible um, approach towards um, things that are happening in life. And right. so <clears throat> while, yes, older adults are more vulnerable to this 
this virus and um, the losses are more concentrated in that area, um, in that population, I think we can also learn some good things from older adults in the way they're coping with these stressors. And in some of my um, research experiences in the past, I actually did look at um, optimism and pessimism among older adults who are coping with a more long-term sort of caregiving situation. These were grandmothers who were taking care of their grandchildren. And um, the good news is that when it comes to these older adults, they bring their expectancies about the world into the situation. And so I see them as a resource. I see them as being um, having the wisdom and, and the sort of long-term perspective that can help some of us younger folks um, deal with this pandemic. So if there was a way to um, communicate more, sort of doing a sort of a story sharing or, um, you know, dialogue with older adults during this time, we might find it beneficial. And so within our own families, we can do this. We can reach out to those older ones in our family and get their take on things. How are they dealing with right. it? How are they right. coping? What are their views? And it can be very instrumental. Great, thank you. So I think um, I, something that I'm like sort of particularly interested in is, you know, when this all came on, it, it happened so quickly, right? And so many of us are rooted in our daily routines and, um, when those things get thrown off, it sort of shakes us to our core, right? But um, as we had to adjust so quickly, and and now maybe you know some of those you know children with behavioral issues, and uh, they they start to get more used to this, right? Mommy and daddy are home, or our parents are home from work all the time. Um, do you have any advice for sort of unraveling this new norm and and getting back into the old routines? As you know, this is going to end at some point, and we're going to need to get back to life as we knew it. Um, you know, what advice do you have for that? Yes. So I believe that children are extremely resilient. They're extremely resilient. They're more easily adaptable than adults. I agree. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I would say a couple of things. So at, at Rutgers, um, the ZAP also has an ADHD clinic. Um, where we work with children with ADHD. And the main sort of approach that we use, um, so traditionally, I think, and typically people want to focus on behavior. They want to focus on getting children to behave a certain way, to act a certain way, to do certain things. You know, I've got a teenager in my house, and trust me, taking showers every day is a challenge. So, you know, <laughs> boy. So, you know, you have to really think about picking your battles and what's right. important. The other thing, the main thing that we try to train, provide parent training around is this concept of mentalization. Mentalization is a process through which, just to say briefly, um, you can sort of imagine what is in the mind of the other person. So we do this naturally as adults. We walk around, we look at our boss's faces or we look at our friends' faces and we kind of try to imagine what they're going through and what they're thinking. And then we respond appropriately. I think parents need to cultivate this in their interactions with their children that have some behavioral challenges. Um, oftentimes we just get angry or we get frustrated or we're just, do what I tell you. It's happening to the best of us. 
I think this situation calls for, okay, this child is not doing what I told them to do. What might be happening in their minds? What might they be thinking and feeling? And to sort of step back and try to mentalize or engage your child in this sort of relationship. And I think at the end of the day, what matters, whether we're preparing to return, preparing for a second wave, what matters are relationships. Relationships matter. And so whatever you have to do as a parent to foster and nurture that relationship with the child, it doesn't mean you know, you let them do things that are harmful to themselves or that they get to, you know, a free card, get a jail free card for the rest of their their time during the social distancing period. But don't lose track of the relationship. Great advice. Um, so for any like members of the Rutgers community, any staff, faculty, students that feel like they may be having some mental health problems during this. Are there uh, are there any resources available to them that's provided by Rutgers that they could reach out to? Sure, um, definitely. I know within my own school, we have what we call a psychological services network. It's a network of about 200 volunteer psychologists and mental health professionals who have agreed to provide psychological services for the community whether they have insurance or not. So Rutgers employees, students, um, members of our community can simply go to our website. It's gazapp, G-S-A-P-P, um, at rutgers.edu. And you will find a link to that um, psychological services network. You simply fill out a form online and you'll be matched with a psychological uh, mental health provider within 48 hours. And that's a big resource for all of us. Um, and I just want to say just to John, just to what you had said earlier about if they're having mental health problems, or maybe Paul, it was you who asked the question. It's not only for people who are having mental health problems. Realize that we're all coping with the challenges of COVID right now. So having a partner who can be thoughtful and reflective with you during this time might be meaningful. And so developing a new relationship with someone who is an emotional partner who can provide you with some guidance, provide you with some tools, um, just sort of expanding your capacity to cope, getting some new practices on, on, you know, in your suite of responses might be helpful. So not only for people who are mentally ill or struggling with mental illness, it could be that you have concerns about a parent, you have concerns about a family member, you just need to talk through it with someone. Um, this is a good option. And I know that Rutgers has a, um, a Rutgers-wide uh, are, you, are You United um, or hashtag are you something like that. I think it's called Rutgers United. Um, that have a variety of resources, um, whether it's through UBHC or um, Gazap. There's a 24-hour call line that UH, UBHC supports. So there are lots of resources out there. I, but I just want to say that um, people first think about safety and, and well-being in terms of being able to secure food, shelter, before they think about their mental health needs. And so for some, 
the concern may more be about their employment, about stability around their family lives. That takes you know, priority. But I do believe that when things have become a little bit more settled and people are, okay, this is what my new norm is going to be, that's when you allow yourself to have those feelings, right? To feel anxious, to feel depressed. And that's when you're probably going to need help. So probably not right away, but down the line, I think folks will be able to take advantage of um, mental health services. Yeah, that's great. I'm, I'm sure that a lot of people will find that really useful, um, especially people that maybe didn't think that they would uh, reach out to something like that before. Um, okay, so one more question just to wrap us up. When all this is over and everything is back to normal, so to say, what are you most looking forward to doing? I truly, truly miss my students. I miss spending time with them, seeing them in the hallways, um, greeting them, they greeting me, sharing their stories with me. Um, you know, those relationships are so important to me and I miss seeing my faculty. Um, we still, you know, I still spend a lot more time with the faculty now on, you know, Zoom or Teams or WebEx. Um, and I spend a lot of time with my professional community but the students are the heart and soul of, of the university. And so not having that sort of personal connection with them has, I'm looking forward to that. I'm also looking forward to continuing some of the um, new practices that I've developed and, and made space for in my life. And um, so I spent a lot of time cooking with my 14 year olds and um, He's actually a very good cook, which surprised me. I guess he must have been paying attention. And so that's one thing I'm looking forward to continuing. And the other uh, activity that I just enjoy and I picked up is um, I downloaded a, a bike trail guide. Um, so New Jersey has all these bike trails. And yes. so my son and my husband, we go on these bike rides you know, just pick one. I mean, there's so many. New Jersey is such a beautiful state. And so um, we've been having fun exploring parts of New Jersey that probably would never have made time for. So I'm looking forward to continuing that when I uh, return. That's great. That's great. That's great. Um, well, thank you, everyone, for listening to Episode 7. Uh, thank you, Francine, for coming on. Um, and... We will give you the last word if there's anything else you want to say. Stay safe, everyone, and have some compassion for yourselves. Remember, we're all doing the best we can at this time. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thank you, Francie. Thank, Thank you, Francie, and take care. Bye.